in Luke chapter 6, this week we read, beginning in verse 12, that Jesus went up onto the mountain to pray and He spent all night in prayer. And He did that before He made one of the biggest decisions of His ministry here on earth, before deciding who would be the 12 men that He would appoint as apostles. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 it reads, In these days He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I read the names on that list, I ask the question, why on earth did he pick that guy? I mean, why on earth did he pick Peter? Why did he pick James and John, the sons of thunder? Why on earth did he pick Judas Iscariot? When I think about these men that he chose to have this special position, it actually provides a bit of comfort for me. Because when I take a look at these men that he chose, I begin to recognize that there might still be some hope for me as one of God's disciples, as one of Jesus' disciples, as one of His servants, to actually be a positive impact in His kingdom and in this world and in the work that He has for us. I'd like for us to think just a few moments this morning about these 12 men that we read about in our Scripture reading this week and see if we can't learn some lessons on discipleship just from thinking about who these men were, the ones that Jesus chose. I'd love... I'd like for us to notice four lessons this morning. I'm sure there are probably more, but four stand out to me. And before we get into those, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. We're thankful, Father, that you have let us become your disciples, that you have allowed us to be a part of your work. We pray that you would help us to submit to your will, Help us to honor you and to glorify you by doing things your way. Help us to follow simply your word and nothing else. Father, please forgive us because we are weak and sinful. So many times we turn from your path. We pray that you give us the strength to get back on your straight and narrow. Give us the strength to turn away from Satan's snares. Help us, Father, to avoid the traps that he has laid out in our lives. Help us to lift one another up and to... Strengthen one another so that we might hold each other accountable to your word, that we might help each other go to heaven because we love each other and we love you, Father. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son to die for us so that our sins can be removed and help us to pursue righteousness. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Some lessons that we learned from the Lord's apostles. The very first thing is I consider this list of 12 men, and the differences that we have there is to recognize that that there is no universal profile for who is going to make a good disciple. These are 12 extremely different men, and there's no universal profile that says this guy can be a good disciple, that woman can be a good disciple, and this one can't. We just don't see that. I mean, think about this. Think about the differences that we see here. We see a disciple like Andrew who at first had been a disciple of John the Baptist, who had been actively awaiting the coming of the Messiah in order to deliver Israel from Rome. But on the other hand, we had a Matthew. Seemed to be perfectly satisfied with Rome. 
not not actively waiting for a Messiah to come free them from the oppression of Rome, they're just going on about his life. Two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. We have men like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, poor fishermen, focused on a trade without much education, the Scripture explains. And yet we'd have Matthew, again, a member of that government, a tax collector, one who would, by that occupation, would have more education than those other men. We have folks like Andrew and Philip, who immediately recognized Jesus as the Messiah, But then we had others who did not immediately see that. We had Simon the Zealot, a person who is so opposed to Rome, he's a part of a rebellious group. But then on the other hand, we have Matthew, who is actually a part of that Roman government against which Simon rebelled. Do you see the differences that we had here? Now, I recognize that Jesus, as he went with Philip and met with Nathaniel, he demonstrated there in John chapter 1 that he had an ability to see into the heart. And perhaps it's true that Jesus could see some type of internal quality in all 12 of these men that we couldn't see. That's possible. But the point that we need to recognize is that as far as we can see, there's no universal profile for who gets to be a disciple. There's nothing out there. There's no list of requirements. There's no uh, socioeconomic class or education level or or race or gender or or any of those aspects that we look at and say, well, this one will make a disciple and that one won't. So we'll teach this one the gospel but not that one. You see, when it comes to us passing the gospel on to others, we must never prejudge. No matter what someone has done or how they're living or how they look, Our job is to spread the Word of God so that they might hear the Gospel and the choice might be theirs about whether or not they'll become a disciple. I mean, think about it. Who would have ever thought that Paul would have been a great disciple? Who would have thought as Saul, as he was known at first, as he was going around persecuting, killing Christians, casting them in prison, that that man would have made a great disciple? And who would have ever judged the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, that they would have ever made disciples of Christ? In fact, back up to verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 it says, Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice this. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Who would have thought that the sexually immoral, that idolaters, that adulterers, that men who practice homosexuality, that thieves, the covetous and greedy, the drunkards, revilers, and swindlers would ever make great disciples? But here were people who had changed, who had repented, who had been washed, sanctified, justified, and they made disciples. How easy it is for us to look at others and see that they're not like us right now and prejudge that they wouldn't be good disciples. But when we look at these 12 men that Jesus chose, when we look at the differences, 
we recognize that there is no universal profile. There is no way that we can have a preconception. There's no way that we can prejudge. Our job is simply to take the word, plant and water the seed, and let the folks who hear decide whether or not they will listen and obey. Let God give the increase. He's the one that sees into the hearts, not us. But the second thing I think about is I notice these 12 different men is the disciples need to learn to appreciate the differences. Disciples need to learn to appreciate the differences between disciples. We're not all going to be the same. I mean, how many people are in this room this morning? 140? Uh, how many of us are going to be exactly the same? I mean, let's face it. I know that some of you give thanks every night that you're not like me. We're all different. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. We have different struggles. We have different victories. We have different resources. We have different abilities. We have different backgrounds. We're different. Those 12 men that Jesus chose, they were all different. And the Scripture doesn't record very many altercations between them. In fact, I, I only know of one that's recorded in Luke chapter 22, where it talks about them arguing over who among them is the greatest. But, but just knowing the nature of people, when 12 such different people come together to work, I can only imagine how many times they got into it with each other. Now, can you imagine the political discussions that, that Simon and Matthew had some nights after Jesus got done teaching? Can you imagine how they might get upset with each other? And yet, they learned to work together. They came together, recognizing their differences. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12, the scripture there says, For just as the body is one and has many members... <coughs> Excuse me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Excuse me, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. In this passage, it demonstrates the differences among the members of the body of Christ. There are some eyes, there are some ears, there are some heads, there are some feet, there are some hands. There are differences. And God designed it that way. 
God designed it that way. So that each of us could do our part and the body could do its work as a whole. And we need to learn to appreciate those differences. Capitalizing on the strengths that each of us have and compensating for the weaknesses that each of us have. You don't have to do the same job that I do. I don't have to do the same job that you do. You don't have to be like me. I don't have to be like you. But we all have to be doing our part, recognizing that each of us fits within the body of Christ, that our abilities, our resources, our opportunities allow for the work of Christ. And we all need to be active in that. We need to remember what it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. And that is that we need to allow brotherly love to abound and we need to outdo one another in honor. As we work together in this body and we see the differences among one another, we need to be bestowing honor on each other. Not seeking honor for ourselves, but honoring one another for what each other adds to the body. And we need to remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 15 and 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 15, Paul wrote, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part needs to be working properly. That's what the twelve did. Jesus brought them together. And they had to learn to appreciate their differences. And each part do their part. So that the whole is accomplishing its work. Disciples must learn to appreciate their differences. Thirdly, I learned from that list of twelve in Luke 6 that the cause of Christ unifies enemies. Excuse me. When I think about the biggest difference among those 12 men listed in Luke chapter 6, I can't help but think about Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Simon, so politically opposed to the Roman government, he was a part of a rebellious group that, that often actively pursued rebellion against Rome. On the other hand, we have Matthew, not only friendly with that government, but but a part of that government, an arm of that government, really considered by the Jews a sellout because he had become a part of the government that was oppressing the Jews, taking money away from them in the form of taxes. How is it that these two guys on opposite ends, I mean, look, today Republicans and Democrats can't even get along. How did those two do it? Because the cause of Christ unifies enemies. And in reality, when we take a look at those two men, we actually see what Jesus was accomplishing through his death and microcosm between the Jews and the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Paul wrote this about the Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken us down in the flesh and dividing wall of excuse me, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, reconciling them together in one body. He unified those enemies and brought them together. And that's what the cause of Christ does. Now, let's take a look at our world today. I guess the Jew-Gentile problem is, is not as big as it was here in the first century, but, but how many other problems plague our society? We have race issues. We have class issues. We have education issues. We have geographical issues between the Yankees and the Southerners. We've got all kinds of things that, that might put us on opposite ends of the spectrum. It might cause us to look at somebody as though they're the enemy. As though there's something wrong with them. And what we realize is that when we come into Christ, it breaks down those walls. Unity with Christ removes the hostility between enemies. Why does that happen? Is it just because we just tell ourselves that? Is it just because we repeat in our minds the mantra in Galatians chapter 3 that says that, well, there's neither male nor female or bond or free or Jew nor Greek in Christ, but all are one? Is it because deep down inside we still despise each other, but we're going to act like we like each other to one another's faces? No. It's because when we come into Christ, we suddenly realize we're on an equal playing field with everyone else. We're not better than anyone else. We're sinners, just like everyone else. In need of a Savior, just like everyone else. And when we've been forgiven, we realize that it's not because of us, just like anyone else, but because of God and His grace. And because as we come into Christ, and each of us, through daily growth, becomes more and more like Christ, and the things that are important to Jesus become more and more important to each of us, then all those other things that divided us won't bother us quite as much. Christ has that reconciling power. I mean, it worked among the twelve. 
it should be working like that among us. And you know, if it's not working like that among us, then it means that each of us needs to be growing to be more like Jesus. If we're still allowing the things like race and politics and socioeconomic class to divide us from people, that just means that we have to grow to be more like Christ. And the fourth thing I think about as I think about this list of names in Luke chapter 6 is that even in that original group, there were folks with weakness and even hypocrisy. Now I realize there in Luke chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, it doesn't say a whole lot about those men. It just gives the names. But, but we've read the rest of the Gospels and we've seen their impetuosity. We've seen their brashness. We've seen the times that they had unbelief. We've seen the times of weakness. We saw the times of, of denial. We saw the times where they abandoned Jesus. We see the weakness. And what I recognize from these 12 men is that even as they were walking with Jesus, they all had room to grow. And there's a reason why this is important to me. Because sadly, there are people today who take a look at a local congregation and they see lots of weakness. And they say to themselves, why on earth should I become a Christian? I'm as good as those people. And folks, as they're taking a look for, to become a part of a congregation, if they're going to try to find a group that is absolutely perfect, they need to understand that even Jesus himself didn't put together that kind of group. Even Jesus himself, when he gathered together just 12 people, didn't put together a perfect group. He put together a group of weak people who needed to grow. And I'm going to say to you this morning, if you're one of our guests and you're taking a look at this congregation, I can guarantee you that you can look around at every member and find weakness that we're working on. But we are working. We are striving to grow. And there's not one single place in the world that you will ever be able to go and not find weakness. But even more amazing than that, that there wasn't just weakness where people trying to grow. Even in the midst of the group that Jesus had, there was a hypocrite. A person who was caught in sin, given over to sin, who wasn't working on it. He wasn't penitent. We know that Judas' hypocrisy didn't begin with the betrayal. It began as treasure. If he was pilfering the money box, John 12 and verse 6 tells us. He was a hypocrite. I have no doubt. In a group of 140 people, that if you examine the lives of every individual member of this congregation, that you'll probably find some hypocrites. Some people who aren't penitent. Some people who are just trying to put on a show. Some folks who kind of hope to go to heaven so they keep coming to church, but they don't really want to change anything in their lives. I have no doubt. Now, I don't know who they would be. I mean, if I knew who they were, I would do something about it. But that's kind of the whole thing about being a hypocrite. They're trying to hide that. But if you examine them, you, you probably would find some of those here. 
But even Jesus had one of those. And what's really sad is the number of people who say, I don't want to be a Christian because there's hypocrites there. And it's sad on two accounts. Number one, for the hypocrites who are hindering the spread of the gospel, but also for the people who refuse to accept the grace of Jesus Christ on the account of someone else who is also lost. Why would I ever want to base my salvation on somebody else who's not saved? You see, here's the point. Within congregations, just as with among the disciples, there will always be weakness and there will always be hypocrites. We're working on that. We're striving to grow. We're trying to bring the hypocrites to repentance as we find out. But please, don't allow the weakness and hypocrisy of others to cause you to turn away from Jesus and His church. What good is that going to do your soul eternally? And how many of us have given the chance because of Judas would have said, no, 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 I don't want to be one of your twelve apostles. How many of us would have done that? So why would we today say, no, 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 Lord, I don't want to be a part of your body because you've got Peter's and Judas's there. I think we can learn a lot just from taking a look at those men. And when I look at those 12 names, it gives me a lot of hope. Because I know my weaknesses. And when I see these men, it causes me to say, you know what, there's, there's hope for me as a disciple of Christ. There's hope for me to be a positive part of Christ's kingdom. And I hope that as you look at these men, you can say the same thing. As we all strive together to be the best growing disciples that we can be.